Relatively Geeky presents Doom Speak, Astonishing Tales 4 and 5. I know. There have been a lot of changes to the network feed recently. The ending of the Comics Reading Journal. The eventual slow winding down of Shortbox Showcase. The beginnings of the new Alan's Eyes and Ear show. I know. It's a lot of change. Maybe too much change for some of you, for, for some of us. So I think it's important to get back to the real reason this network exists. The one constant element, that's right, three words. Dr. Doom content. And to honor that, and as a result of some of those recent changes at Relatively Geeky HQ... I am proud to announce a branding change to this very podcast. From henceforth this point forward, this podcast will simply be titled Doomspeak. We have used the general title Relatively Geeky Presents to have a forum for shows that fell outside our Consistent shows at the time, like the Quarterbin Shortbox Showcase, Uncovering the Bronze Age, or the Reading Journal. So this show, the former Relatively Geeky Presents, we used for the musical episodes, the road trip shows, J.L. May and similar events, in addition to the Doom content. But all of that stuff can now be shifted into the Allen's Eyes and Ears branding, which would leave this show to just be Doom Stuff. So why not just acknowledge that? So I want to take this opportunity to welcome you all to the first episode of Doom Speak, a.k.a. Doom Speak Episode 50. Because sometimes... Numbering podcast episodes resembles numbering comic book issues. One thing I should mention here is that eventually, like it's on the long list of things to do, like next summer at the earliest, is to create a separate Doomspeak feed and begin that by populating it with all of the prior Doom-related content we've done over the last decade. That's a long-term plan. It is, in fact, a bit more complicated than just reposting like I do on Quarterman Classics. So I'd like to do that, to have an appropriately distinctive and unique feed befitting the leader of Latveria. So I'd like to do that, but I'm not promising anyone anything on that front. But that is enough from me. Let's get the stuff from you. That's you, lovely listeners. Billy D. from Magazines and Monsters wrote in on the recent Doom 2099 series of Doom, wherein he properly and lawfully took complete and total control of the U.S. political structure and declared himself president properly and legally, I'm sure. Hey, Prof. Good episode as always. 
Great comments from Michael Bailey on the political elements of the storyline. Doom as president sounds fun. I honestly believe he'd have no beef with me. Who could ever have beef with you, Billy? On to another subject. He continues, British and foreign writers writing American politics. Now, this is mostly a pre-internet opinion, but I think it still applies, while acknowledging that some would disagree. I've always found British writers who attempt to contextualize American politics, social situations, etc., quite hilarious. Just as I wouldn't try to attempt doing the same thing to foreign matters due to lack of fully understanding the nuances of said matters. I'm not sure why they feel the need to attempt. 99% of the time, they just write either what a newspaper or TV channel regurgitates, or they just apply their personal beliefs to the book. I'm definitely looking at Alan Moore and Warren Ellis specifically, but I've read other writers' interpretations and find them typically lackluster as well. Not always, but almost always. Love to hear your thoughts and keep the good shows coming. Hail Doom! And a hearty hail Doom to you, Billy, as well. Knowing how poorly I understand British or Canadian or European cultures and practices, and much less so ones that are even further from my own background and experience, yeah, the analysis does often fall short. I do have a story to tell, and I will anonymize this next anecdote to protect the annoying. But back a good number of years ago, when a particularly tendentious political issue was being debated in another English-speaking nation, in the run-up to that tendentious election, I made it known on a social media platform which side I would support, how I would vote if I lived there. And someone from that country let me know that as an American, I should not be commenting on politics of his or her land, probably shouldn't be concerned about it anyway, which, you know, did chasten me for about 10 seconds until I remembered how this person was extremely strong in their opinions on American elections and even spent some time over here, volunteering in some way, if I remember it right, in a U.S. election. Maybe it was handing out flyers or getting petitions signed, helping folks to register, but whatever that person was doing, it was certainly a much greater direct involvement in an election in my country than my one social media message had been. I inquired of this person about this seeming hypocrisy, but it didn't go well. Let's just say that. Something about the U.S. being too important, that of course she or he had to be involved, as opposed to their little old election, which didn't really matter that much, and I was just a pesky, unwelcome interloper. So yeah, maybe it really is that, especially among the English-speaking nations, that they feel that 
talking about our system is fine. Even intervening in our system is fine. But us talking about theirs, maybe not so much. In that episode, I also quoted with some hesitancy, some caution, the use of a word that was within the context of the comic intended to be a slur regarding the cult of Thor, and I expressed a hesitation to use the word. But Gene Hendricks, actual practitioner of Norse religion, said that he had never heard the term Thori outside of the 2099 comics. So you are good, Professor. Those of us in this universe tend to prefer the terms heathen, asatru, or more broadly, Norse pagan. Thank you for that, Gene. Information that is very much appreciated. That last Doom-centric episode received social media support from Clinton, from Coffee and Comics, Chris, from Professor Frenzy, it's a show, the Lady Laurel from the Hunters podcast, Keith G. Baker, Sir Luca the Upstate, the aforementioned Gene Hendricks, Chris Lydon 7, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein, the notorious JJG, Karen, from Between the Pages, James, from Karen, Ed, from Teal Productions, Matt McKeegan, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Derek, Derek WC, Vic and Phoenix, Pat, from the Longbox Crusade, Chris Willette, and a friend of old doom, faithful member and acolyte, Ranger Gord, from the Prayer of Justice podcast. Thank you all. And that brings us to our comic book content for the episode. Our major focus, obviously, will be on the Doom half, the the premiere half, obviously, of Astonishing Tales 4 and 5. Although, to be fair, we will mention in brief the Khazar stories as well. Thus, we can say that we have covered the totality of both Astonishing Tales 4 and 5 from Marvel Comics, cover dated February and April 1971, respectively. So let's start with the covers, and we see a continuation of the progress we saw in issues 2 and 3, after Kazar inexplicably took the top half of issue one, which just makes no sense. The cover of issue four by John Buscema, Joe Sinnott, and Sam Rose, and the split in the left and right panels, Jungle Lord versus Sun God, and the Master of Menace, alone against the deadliest foe of all. Now, you know, just between us, I'm kind of glad that Master of Menace didn't really stick. Rightly so, it just doesn't fit for Doom. However, on this particular cover, I will say it looks like someone is trying to kill Doom in his sleep. And that looks exciting. The cover of issue 5 by Buscema, John Verporten, and Marie Severin is much better insofar as it arranges the lead characters correctly. Across the top Let's be honest, the top 75% of the cover 
It's Doom. Doing a little rope-a-dope with the Red Skull. That's the, the boxing maneuver popularized by Muhammad Ali in which you let your opponent tire themselves out by seemingly overpowering you with punch after punch after punch. Clearly, that is what Doom is doing here as the Red Skull smacks him around, proclaiming without evidence that the final victory must belong to the Red Skull. (laughs) A poor deluded Nazi. By the way, the Doom stories in these two issues are reprinted in Supervillain Team-Up 15, and the cover of that is probably the best one of the three. It's by George Perez, and it shows the skull blasting Doom with a powerful ray. This cover, the reprint cover, proclaims that this is the first battle between Marvel's mad monarchs. Which, compared to the Master of Menace, I'll take Mad Monarch, because Doom is mad. He's angry at his country's injustice, the sad plight of his people. And he's also mad at that blue stretchy guy for, like, everything. So, a quick discussion of the Khazar stories here in issue four and five, The Sun God and Rampage, both written by Jerry Conway with Barry, not yet Windsor, Smith, on the art. Issue four picks up where issue three left off, with Khazar and his allies assaulting the city of the reptile people, the Valakuri. The petrified man actually turns out to be the key to the plot, as he finds the original idol that gave him his stony powers long centuries ago. Touching it again, he is turned into Garak, the sun god. And he stops Zaladin's attack by melting the combatants' weapons. But even as her warriors surrender, Zaladin does not admit defeat. She flies off on her pterodactyl like a boss, with Khazar captured in the beast's talons. Not a great story, but a great final image. That ends issue four, and issue five picks up right there with Khazar struggling to free himself, and the former petrified man slash current Garok the sun god just getting more and more unstable, let's go with. Eventually, he lands on the peacemaking idea of just killing all living things. Okay, look, that's a starting point, but maybe not the best idea. Kazar realizes this is not a great idea, and he manages to drag Garok back to the fiery pool. He is attacked by the guardian of the pool, but manages to defeat him and then cast Garok into the pool himself, where he loses his immortality and dies. And on the last page, a huge idol falls onto the wicked Zaladin, and she also dies. Well, dies, and this actually applies to both of these characters, dies 
you know, for now, but not forever, because comics. So thank you, Kazar, for serving as the opening act for this episode. You have done your job well. You've warmed up the crowd. You've gotten us all excited. But we all know who the star is. And after this promo break, we'll be back to talk about a pair of Dr. Doom's more astonishing stories. Where am I? In the Palace of Glittering Delights. Who are you? I am Andrew Leyland, and for over 200 episodes, I have covered everything genre-related, from the obvious things that everyone talks about, Star Trek, to deep dives into the early issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, via the obscure, such as ITC's experimental science fiction dramas The Champions or Department S. It's very cosmopolitan. You never know who you meet next. In the Palace of Glittering Delights. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Available from Two True Freaks and via your podcatcher of choice. And we're back. The Doom Story in Astonishing Tales number four, The Invaders, because it has an exclamation point was written by Larry Lieber with Wally Wood's pencils. We start in the aftermath of Issue 3, the fierce but futile rebellion led by deposed Prince Rodolfo has been vanquished, and the iron-clad monarch of Latveria still stands, his head unbowed, his power intact, to defeat the rebels. I had to destroy my palace, but I am doom. And what I built once, I can build again. Yeah, that's right. Yes, you are, and yes, you can. Dr. Doom then orders, sorry, kindly requests the people of Latveria to return to the royal palace and begin the rebuilding at their own pace or without delay, whichever works better for them. Doom gets the palace reconstruction underway, trusting his people to finish the work on their own. Sure, you might think he could use robots to do the construction, but Doom is all about the jobs programs and showing his support to the Latverian working class. He has no such interest in such menial matters as the construction of his palace. And also, he really digs flying around with his jetpack, so he takes a vacation. It is such a shame that Hashtag Big Comic, in their jealousy, no longer portrays the character at this, his most awesome jetpack-flying version. Remember, that Iron Man once had roller skates. (laughs) And Doom once had a jetpack. Check mate. As Doom rockets off to the Riviera, and who among us would not have taken that opportunity, he is unaware that the goings-on in Latveria have been monitored by the Red Skull, 
and his group of allies, the Exiles, the Skull intends to take over Latveria, which his newfound followers hadn't exactly heard of before, evidently not Marvel readers. Latveria is a sovereign state with diplomatic recognition. It will give us a power base from which to build the Fourth Reich. And he actually makes some quick work of the Latverians. Meanwhile, because this is many decades before social media and 24-hour news, Doom enjoys his vacay, sauntering casually among the fancy folk in their fancy restaurants, the hotties on the beach. But let's be honest, Doom is still the best-dressed person in Monte Carlo. All of this speaks to one of Doom's most famous future proclamations from about a decade ago, I'd say. Bah, there is no casual Friday. If Doom can wear the same epic clothes every day, then henceforth shall all my minions and lackeys. Doom, as you may expect, gets some attention. One tuxedo-clad dude commenting, Heaven help those who defy him while the gal next to him in her designer dress says that she thinks he's fascinating, and spoilers, she is correct. Doom requests the royal suite for his accommodations, which takes the hotel a few minutes to arrange, seeing as it's actually already occupied. That night, some thieves try to break in, assuming that he has some jewels and valuables with him. But Doom does not like having his royal repose disturbed by common thieves. But then again, who among us does? Doom is so relatable. I also want to point out here again that we see Doom as a fashion trend center. Many people today have taken to wearing face masks when they sleep. And here is Doom more than five decades ago, half a century, sleeping in his metallic face mask. You could argue that perhaps that's not as comfortable as a cloth face mask, but I think you would be wrong, and so does Doom. A well-placed Zur blasts the would-be thief, defenestrating him safely into the nearby local pond, hashtag kindness. At that time, Red Skull continues his assault in Latveria, and quickly, it's all over. He who controls the royal palace controls Latveria! And Dr. Doom grows weary of being on vacation. Annoyed by the treatment he's receiving from hotel management, Doom angrily totals their gambling room when it's suggested that he may use equipment in his armor to win at roulette. Furious at the insolence of the dolts, Doom decides to return to his home, flying off like a boss via his jetpacks. But the Latverian sovereign is completely unaware that the Red Skull's invasion was a complete success, and that his exiles have converted the palace, into an image straight out of Nazi Germany. Banners and symbols and everything. It's ugly. 
The story continues in issue five, A Land Enslaved, which was written again by Larry Lieber, with art this time provided by George Tusca and Mike Esposito. We start with a full-page splash of doom that sets the stage for his return to his homeland. But the Red Skull has taken over the newly rebuilt royal palace, and trust me, Doom is not going to like what the Skull has done to the place. What the Fuhrer dreamed the Red Skull will achieve. Today, Latveria. Tomorrow, the world. Doom's excellent surveillance system enables the Skull to see his approach, and he is attacked on sight. Doom valiantly fends off a range of surprise attacks, before being knocked out with a missile full of chemi sleep. They then entrap Doom in a sarcophagus-like restraint and leave him on the open plaza, displaying him for all the public to see. This device is straight out of James Bond, as it is designed to capture the sun's power and direct it inward, cooking the person inside to death. The Skull is pretty darn pleased with himself having humbled and humiliated the mightiest of monarchs. But even as the Skull exults deep within the vault device torture thing, Doom manages to reach the thermo-energizer in his armor. Now, this is not as cool as the jetpack, but in this circumstance, it is just a bit more helpful. He harnesses the sun's energy, storing it up until I have power enough to shatter this encasement. Meanwhile, his people are not being treated well by the skull and his ilk. There is no place in the Fourth Reich for the old and the sick or subversives. The concentration camps await you. But as the oppression mounts, so does a monarch's strength. Until finally, at last, I'm free. Let the Red Skull beware. Doom charges towards his castle, where the Skull's men try to keep him away with all sorts of weapons, but none of these have any effect on our hero. Dr. Doom then battles each of the Red Skull's elite exiles, easily defeating them all. My resources are too vast. My powers too great. The Skull is starting to see what is going to eventually happen here. It must not end like this. I won't again taste the bitter dregs of defeat. I won't! But shortly thereafter, he realizes that he has never seen such hatred as he does in Doom's eyes, because it is important to remember that Doom has a lot in common with the Sentinel of Liberty himself, Captain America. They both, in equal measure, hate the Red Skull and hate Nazis. Doom traps the Skull and his allies in an underground corridor, pumping it full of a shrinking gas that makes the skull and his remaining exile followers small enough for Doom to place in a tiny rocket and fire them away. Actually, 
actually, it's a hypnogas, and they only believe they've been shrunken, Doom does in fact send them in a rocket back to Exile Island, bringing an end to their brief occupation of Latveria. By the time they arrive, they'll realize the extent of the illusion. And in the last four panels, we get Doom doing what he does best. Okay, actually, looming is what he does best, but here is what he does second best, I guess. And that is monologue. An illusion that could only have been conceived by one supreme intellect, the most powerful brain on Earth, the brain of Dr. Doom, the end. Bam! That was an action-packed 20 pages or so. It's become such a trope, such a worn-out joke. But today, seriously, this would be Marvel's summer event. A six-issue miniseries with one-offs and tie-ins in dozens of titles as well. But here, two half-issues, or as it's reprinted, one single issue. There is a lot of good stuff here. First and foremost, in issue 5, Doom spends a lot of time punching Nazis. And by any definition we can come up with, that makes him a hero. And here we're talking about literal actual Nazis, not in the exaggerated symbolic sense that the word can be used. Actual, literal Nazis are fought and tormented and defeated by Doom. And this is a great concept from Larry Lieber, because he's been given a tough job, actually, being tasked with writing a series of stories for this title, featuring Doom as the protagonist, and not as a foil to Reed and his poor, pathetic team. And one way to make a character look good, any character, is to have them fight the Third Reich or the Fourth Reich. And it is not specifically mentioned here. I don't think I missed it. I, I, I don't think it's there. But we need always remember that Doom's people, now we'd call them the, the Roma people, back then it was the G word. And since that word is not included in this story, I don't feel the need to say it myself, but that type of people group was among the groups that the actual Nazis of the Third Reich felt were deserving of extermination. So when it comes to Doom fighting the Ratsies, it's personal. The story in issue 5 is so great, so action-packed, and just so darned epic that the switch from the greatness of Wally Wood into the workman-like pedestrian averageness of George Tuska is barely even noticeable. And this one actually does work as two parts. That's the way it was designed, the way it was planned, the way it was executed. Because the story from issue four places Doom in Monaco, with issue five taking place in Latveria. So there is a very nice split there between the two issues. The reprint version in Supervillain Team-Up 15 actually cuts the first two pages of the second issue and then adds a caption box to smooth out the transition between the issues. I doubt you would notice, but being in two separate issues, especially when you have two different artists, 
I think that probably makes for a better reading experience. And that Monte Carlo stuff, Doom strutting through a casino, an upscale restaurant, a beach clad in his armor, absolutely amazing. The Red Skull half of the story, especially those really lame exiles, those are lulls in the story, kind of low points, but everything focusing on Dr. Doom is really good, uh, phenomenal. These experiences with Astonishing Tales has really made it clear to me just how important this title was to Doom's development as a comic book character. This is a turning point, I think carrying a story all by his lonesome, and this is really important, fighting one of Marvel's biggest of the big bads. It continues to move him down the path from villain to sympathetic villain, allowing him to occasionally be portrayed as even an anti-hero. So as good as the stories are, and I think they are, frankly, I think they're also important. Now, there is one element that the reprint title has that the original lacks. It's one of Doom's uh, side hustles. Because obviously, he's not taking a salary for being Latveria's leader. All of that is plowed back into strengthening his nation's defenses and economy and defenses. But he does need some wham, some walking around money. And that he gets from a range of sources a lot of patents, obviously, but also celebrity endorsements. So let's just play a quick game of word association. I'll say a word or a phrase, and you think of the word or phrase that comes to mind. And then I'll say my word, okay? So, light. See, for me, I went with bulb, library, book. Apple, pie, milk duds, Dr. Doom. I mean, of course, it's 1978. You're a candy company looking to make a splash with a two-page center spread in a comic book, and your brand is about a shell with a soft center. Of course you pick Dr. Doom. Who else could you select? Which gives us one of Doom's Bronze Age highlights. Perfectly placed right in the middle of Supervillain Team-Up 15. Heal, Superdogs. It's the infamous Milk Duds, Super Duds sweepstakes. Super Duds of the universe, take heart. At last, our time has come. No longer will we suffer the scorn of those who would mock our cause. No longer. Will we bear the insults of the sniveling Super Avengers, groveling glory seekers? They have their sweepstakes, and we shall have ours. The infamous Milk Dud Super Dud sweepstakes, to be precise. Just fill out the entry blank, then mail it back to us, and strike a blow for Super Duds everywhere. A masterfully menacing scheme. To all milk duds, slowpoke, and black cow eaters, we offer an opportunity that the misguided followers of superheroes cannot share. And you shall hear all about it in due time, but first have patience. 
while we tell you of our grand design, our design for total domination of the famous Clark Barr superhero sweepstakes. We shall insist that your entry be accepted in their sweepstakes to give you an equal chance at the prizes they offer to their toadies. We shall use force if necessary. Your date with destiny. Now for the spoils of victory, the rich rewards of ruthlessness. If you should be the first prize winner, you and your family, limit of four people, will be flown to New York City and back. You'll stay for three days and two nights, all expenses paid. You'll be taken on a personal tour of the Marvel Comics offices, where an artist will draw your image into an upcoming issue of your favorite Marvel comic. You'll be part of the action and a famous superhero adventure. You'll be allotted time for such frivolous activities as sightseeing. And when your comic adventure is published, you'll get 15 copies to bestow upon your family and fraudulent friends. They'll be awestruck to know a famous person like you. If you happen to be one of the 20 second prize winners, you'll get our own famous superhero, Bah, Dolts, or infamous super dud wristwatch. You'll have your choice of the cowardly countenances of such witless wonders as Wonder Woman, Superman, Spider-Man, or Batman, or, for the enlightened among you, the Joker. The full-color Swiss-made watches would normally sell for $19.95 to $23.95. If you should be one of the 100 third prize winners, you'll get a year's subscription to the DC or Marvel comic of your choice. The Incredible Hulk, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Ms. Marvel, Captain America, Red Sonja, Justice Society, Plastic Man, Thor, you name it. Even that precious poppet, Little Lulu. Grand and glorious Super Dud Prize. And now, faithful followers, welcome to the opportunity we promised earlier. In addition to drawings, for all those prizes you've just been reading about, everybody who dares to enter the infamous Milk Dud Super Dud sweepstakes will automatically be entered in a special drawing. And ten of those people, maybe even you, are going to win a splendid Schwinn. 10-speed bicycle. Of course, wrappers from Milk Dud, Slowpoke, or Black Cows can also help you get all kinds of super premiums. All of the details are in the famous Clark Bar ads. So find yourself a pen or pencil, fill out the entry blank. The rules, alas, we do have rules, say you must print and mail your entry before November 1st, 1978. It's so easy, even a simple-minded super-do-gooder could do it. Of course, Doom can't be limited to just Marvel references, you notice, because no, he is larger than such petty corporate rivalries. And are you surprised that Doom is a fan of Little Lulu? Of course not, that man has a heart and a legendary sense of humor. Did you know that Doom 1 Latveria's Got Talent seven years in a row? One of the top stand-up comics in the whole nation. Now, we talked a few months ago in the quarter bin about 
Marvel in particular, their history of doing reprint books and how the need for those have completely disappeared these days, making them a relic of a past era. And here we get one valuable item, one memorable note in the reprint version of this story. Thank you, Supervillain Team Up 15, for giving us the legendary Milk Duds ad. Yes. Hostess ads get a lot more publicity these days, but come on, this has got to be the number one candy-themed ad in all of Comicsdom. And like we said, even without that ad, these are still very good comics. I recommend strongly that you take a look at these issues, Astonishing Tales 4 and 5, if they ever cross your path, which is probably more likely in the reprint versions, Supervillain Team Up 15, and you get the Milk Duds ad as a bonus. And I just thought of this. This just popped into my head. I'm not really sure why, but I also recommend that you take a look at snacking on some Milk Duds, you know, for what that's worth. And with that, we have wrapped up this terrific two-part story, which is not the end of Doom's appearances in Astonishing Tales, and more importantly, it's not the end of my access to to the Doom stories of this title. Issues 6 and 7 form a storyline involving Black Panther, and issue 8 is quite an important story in terms of Doom's uh, backstory and some of his motivations. All three of those are published in the Book of Doom hardcover that I have, So I definitely plan to get to those at some point in the future. However, not the near future. Because this podcast was never meant to be an index show. And it is in danger of becoming an index show. Because half the time, we covered Doom 2099 in an index format. So what I want out of the other half of the episodes is a bit more randomness here and there. Stories from other places across the Marvel Universe. So, like I say, we will definitely cover more Astonishing Tales, but I think it's going to be a while before we do. Next up, we will get back to the future, back to Doom's rule and reign over the USA. In Doom 2099 issues 32 and 33, And after that, I'm not sure, just something different. If you have any feedback on this episode, on this issue, Astonishing Tales, or anything related to the Good Doctor, the rightful ruler of Latveria, heroes fighting Nazis, the yummy soft taste of Milk Duds, don't hesitate to contact me. You can do that via email at relativelygeeky at gmail.com or as a comment on our Twitter or Facebook or blog post for the episode. The blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Thank you all for listening. Take care. And hail Doom! Hail Doom! Hail Doom!